CFUV 101.9 FM broadcasts from the Songhees and Wasanich territories, also known as Victoria, BC. You can listen to our music, spoken word, and multicultural programs anywhere, anytime at CFUV.ca. This program reflects the views and opinions of the participants and not necessarily those of CFUV. Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded February 12, 2022. While not content with the massive ecological damage created by land-based metals mining, industrial interests are now viewing the oceans of the world as the next frontier. Deep sea mining, known too as seabed mining, is the next big thing, and we're told it will be a part of the solution to humanity's carbon pollution problem. Once again, technologists promise they'll fix the environmental problems they, and modern society, has created with technology with technology, but not everyone is convinced. Julia Barnes is an environmental champion and award-winning filmmaker of the documentaries Sea of Life and Bright Green Lies. Julia is aligned now with an array of ocean defenders, contributing her talents to the efforts to kill deep-sea mining in the cradle. Julia Barnes in the first half, and rabble-rousing anarcho-socialist type David Rovix, whose frequent essays on political issues and societal observation are featured at Counterpunch and Dissident Voice org among other places describes himself as a broadcaster musician blogger and author of the novel a busker's adventures david also has picked bones with spotify inc for years and assays into it again in his latest essay neil young joe rogan and a swedish billionaire with a twist david rovix and picking again at the pustule of the modern music reality spotify in the second half but first julia barnes and smashing the deep sea mining pandora in its box Welcome to the program, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's my great pleasure, of course. Now, to begin with, Julia, can we just say, just what is deep sea mining? Deep sea mining is probably the biggest upcoming threat to the ocean. There are three forms of deep sea mining that are currently being proposed. There's the extraction of polymetallic nodules from the abyssal plains region of the ocean. There's the extraction of cobalt-rich crusts from seamounts, and there's the extraction of polymetallic sulfides from hydrothermal vents. All three of these would be catastrophic for the organisms who inhabit those areas. Um, the main form of mining that companies are gearing up for right now is the extraction of these polymetallic nodules. So that is the form of mining that could begin in less than two years. And that's where a lot of the focus of my work has been, because that's the one that's kind of the most urgent. So to give people a sense of what that type of mining might look like um, and what's at stake, uh, polymetallic nodules are these rock-like formations that exist in these long, flat stretches of the deep sea floor that are known as the abyssal plains. So polymetallic nodules, um, they range in size anywhere from the size of pebbles to the size of potatoes. They are very porous. 
but they also contain metals that companies are interested in exploiting. Things like copper, nickel, cobalt, and manganese. And polymetallic nodules are often the only hard substrate that species can attach to in an otherwise very muddy and silty environment of the deep sea floor. So things like corals and sponges grow on polymetallic nodules and species of coral in the deep sea can live to be up to 4,000 years old. There are species of sponges who can live up to 11,000 years old. So just really amazing, you know, long-lived species. But then polymetallic nodules are also habitat for a lot of the other, you know, myriad of organisms who exist in the abyssal plains, various types of fish, eels, octopus, sea cucumbers, just a wide range of different species who inhabit the deep sea depend on these. So the removal of polymetallic nodules would be quite detrimental for deep sea species just in terms of the habitat loss. But on top of that, the deep sea is actually the largest active carbon sink on the planet. And polymetallic nodules do play a role in the carbon cycle as well. So they're home to communities of microbes that exist you know, within their porous structure of these polymetallic nodules in much greater concentration, much greater diversity than what exists in the surrounding uh, seabed. And these microbes, through a redox reaction using some of the metals in polymetallic nodules, they pull carbon out of the surrounding seawater and help sequester it into the sediment beneath the nodules. So polymetallic nodules, they play a role in the carbon cycle. They also, there have been some studies looking at the fact that they help regulate the pH of the deep sea environment. There's some exchange of metals and nutrients from these polymetallic nodules into the surrounding environment. So they really regulate the conditions that make the deep sea livable for all the other species. So even if there was a way to magically snap your fingers and transport polymetallic nodules to a ship on the surface without any of the attendant horrors that go along with mining, this would still be really detrimental to the deep sea in terms of this loss of key habitat and this loss of this function of the ocean's carbon cycle. Of course, the reality of mining is that it doesn't happen by magic and there's this whole process involved. So I would think from a miner's point of view that listening to what you've just said and, uh, and especially uh, about the nodules on the seabed, we've seen many of us uh, footage and it, it kind of looks like the moon, you know, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of life around just a few rocks around. Hey, why don't I just drop some other material? We do artificial reefs and so forth. Have mining companies proposed that they could replace habitat that depends on the nodules, as you describe, with some other inanimate objects? It sounds like maybe they can't. I don't think anyone's proposing that. What the companies will do a lot of times in their PR material is talk about the deep sea as this lifeless desert and don't worry, there's like nothing down there that we're going to disturb, so it doesn't matter. It's the um, moon. Exactly. And of course, it runs contrary to you know everything we now know about the deep sea. It's very biodiverse. Every time scientists go down there, they discover new species that are 
were previously unknown to humans. There is life down there. <laughs> but uh, they haven't really proposed replacing these things um, because I think everyone knows that's not really possible. Polymetallic nodules are so uh, complex. It's not just like this static object. It really is a whole kind of like biome in and of itself. And they don't come back on any kind of human time scale. They are incredibly slow growing. They grow at a rate of 10 millimeters per million years. So once you remove them, they're really not coming back. Well, and it's also a bit of a misnomer to think that this activity only happens uh, on the surface, in the deep bed surface anyway. I mean, you can, you can explain all that to people, but when they see video that looks like a seemingly waste, uh, a seeming wasteland, and they can they are told that the minerals brought up from that wasteland could actually reduce carbon emissions because they're being employed in in various uh, so-called green industries. It, it's a it's a hard sell. But in your short uh, video, deep sea mining, what could it do to the ocean? You put the lie to the fact that the effects are just on the seabed. Can you explain your video and and how? that process works and how the pollution created by the mining process doesn't happen just on the seabed. Absolutely. Deep sea mining would really affect all layers of the ocean. And the way that they're planning on mining the deep sea involves deploying things that have been described as house-sized machines. These machines would move along the seafloor and extract the polymetallic nodules as well as whatever else is in their path, as they're moving along the seafloor, they're going to stir up a whole bunch of sediment, plumes of sediment that would, you know, smother and bury organisms who can't get away. On top of that, they bring with them noise and light pollution and things that are just not good for species who are adapted to darkness and, and quiet and using sound and bioluminescence to communicate. So these machines would potentially be uh, crushing polymetallic nodules at depth, then sending the crushed materials up through a riser pipe thousands of meters to a ship on the surface. On the ship, there would be some initial processing of the material. They would want to separate the uh, polymetallic nodules, the parts that they want, from the kind of waste materials, sediment, and various debris. And then they're going to be left with a lot of wastewater that they have to do something with. They have to get rid of it. There are some estimates that each mining vessel would produce two to six million cubic feet of sediment every day. That's equivalent to about 22,000 dump trucks full of sediment being produced per day per mining uh, machine. And this has to be then dumped back into the ocean. So they're planning on pumping it down to an as yet undetermined depth, but somewhere in the midwater zone, they will be pumping this fine particulate matter, this sediment that came up from the sea floor. And this would have a hugely uh, problematic effect on fish, anyone who uses gills to breathe in the water. Um, the fine particulate matter gets into their gills, it damages their ability to breathe, it could just murder a whole bunch of fish. And of course, there are uh, currents in the water column that will take these plumes of sediment much farther than just around the mining area. Uh, the area that they're planning 
on mining is called the clarion Clipperton zone. It's located between Hawaii and Mexico, and probably the area with the largest concentration of polymetallic nodules on the planet. And if all of the mines that are being planned for that area go ahead, this would be the largest contiguous mining area on the planet, as wide as the continental United States. There would be multiple mines operating at once, multiple machines and boats dumping sediments and stirring up sediments. And this is a migratory area for a whole bunch of different species. So it's really the largest upcoming disaster that is being planned. I mean, an ecological disaster being planned for the ocean that could begin in as little as, you know, less than two years. Well, and and you cover that in, uh, in the film. And again, it's uh, deep sea mining. What could it do to the ocean? You can find it at uh, on YouTube if you do a search for deep sea mining. Uh, tell me more about the film. I, I, and one of the things that I found uh, most uh, inspiring or urgent or uh, uh, cogent, uh, poignant about <laughs> in the film was uh, a comment made by John Horston of the Blue Planet Society, and he echoes what you just said. He said, "This is this is a, a um, an emerging technology that promises massive uh, ecological damage, but we're in a position to stop this uh, this technology from moving further now. We, we we have a chance, as I said in the introduction, to kill this in the cradle." Mm -hmm. We are at such a crucial time right now with deep sea mining because unlike so many other environmental issues, this actually hasn't started yet, at least not in international waters, not at scale. Um, we do have the opportunity to stop it before it happens, and it's a very narrow uh, time span right now. And when it comes to deep sea mining, this is an issue that most people simply have not heard of. Most people are not aware that this is even being planned. And I think when people hear those three words put together, deep sea mining, the initial reaction is kind of horror. Like, this does not sound like a good idea. And then the more research you do into it, you realize actually it's even <laughs> worse than you thought. So I think it's, yeah, it's this is a key moment and we absolutely need to make more people aware that this issue is happening and really put up a resistance to it because I think it can be stopped. We have this great opportunity, let's, let's do it because, um, you know, if this goes ahead, the potential consequences are so much greater than what can be known. I mean, we don't know how bad things will be. We know it'll be bad. But I, I don't want to find out the consequences of this. Well, and, and Horston says, uh, quote, if ever there was a future problem that we can stop now, it, it's this. We don't need this. Uh, we don't need this deep sea mining and, and, it, and it should be stopped. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with Julia Barnes. Julia is an environmental champion. She's an award-winning filmmaker. Her documentaries are The Sea of Life and Bright Green Lies. She's aligned right now uh, with a variety, a large group of uh, ocean defenders, an array, uh, in this effort to bring deep-sea mining into the consciousness of the greater public with the hopes of stopping this and, and stopping it now. Can you tell me, Julia, about some of your collaborators in this project and in this effort? You know, when I started making a film about deep sea mining, I kind of just wanted to put something together very quickly and educate people about this issue. And so I reached out to some of the groups that I knew were working on this. There are some really great organizations already. So Mining Watch Canada is doing great work around deep sea mining. Actually, 
there's a petition that they have out right now uh, for Parliament. So if you're uh, listening, definitely check that out and support that. Um, they're they're calling for candidates to support a moratorium on deep sea mining. There's also the deep sea mining campaign happening out of Australia. Uh, there's various groups in the Pacific who are you know resisting deep sea mining. So there's the Pacific Blue Line statement is a really good one calling for a ban on deep sea mining people can check that out and sign that as well there's various civil society groups like in tonga and there's an organization that myself and a bunch of friends just started called deep sea defenders so we're collaborating with people and uh yeah everybody's trying to do what they can to um to raise awareness about this issue and and prevent it hopefully from going ahead well, and and it's not uh, limited to the area in the Pacific that you you mentioned, or uh, Tongo, who you feature in the in the film. Uh, and I beg your pardon uh, for the pronunciation. Pelen, Pelenatita Kara of the Civil Society Forum of Tonga, the Pacific Network on Globalization is also featured. And you mentioned that in Papua New Guinea, uh, Nautilus Minerals, a Canadian registered mining uh, interest, was stopped in their efforts to get it going there. But they're uh, moving along and trying to get similar things even here in Canada. I'm looking at, at a, a quite uh, an old article in the Narwhal, that terrific online uh, site uh, by Sonia Jind. And sorry, Sonia, about that pronunciation. Too. Her article is, it's only a matter of time before deep sea mining comes to Canada and we're not ready. She wrote that in March of 2019. Are you familiar with the article, Julia, and has, has anything happened to make us more ready since then? I'm not too familiar with the article, although I have certainly um, spoken with people about the concern for deep sea mining coming to Canada. Right now, it seems like the way laws are set up within Canada is to disallow deep sea mining, like it would not be permitted under current circumstances. But if the international seabed authority goes ahead with making regulations for international waters, and if they are weaker than the regulations we have in Canada, that could potentially drive ours down such that we have to allow mining to happen within Canada's economic exclusive zone. Um, so that's definitely a fear that that could happen uh, if this whole industry gets underway. There's certainly lots of the you know types of environments under sea that companies would be interested in mining, like sea mounts, uh, hydrothermal vents, that kind of thing. So it, yeah, it's it's a huge concern for sure. That could potentially be an issue in the future. And not very far west of us here on Vancouver Island, there's just such an area uh, with the sea vents. You know how active, uh, how seismically active it is just off of our west coast, a couple hundred miles. And that is an area that's been proposed as a marine protection area. This is covered in the Narwhal article, too. And again, that that's Sonia Jindan. That's the Narwhal whale.ca. Uh, if you're not familiar with the site, please go to it, folks. It's uh, it's absolutely fantastic. It's a good article, as I say, but it's almost three years old. There's an area off of uh, this island that has been dubbed the deep sea oasis that they're trying to get protection for. But as of the writing of that article, that uh, that hadn't happened yet. But there are some successes uh, uh, down south of us here in Washington State and in Oregon. They don't. They've banned uh, uh, seabed mining off their coasts, but uh, and they're trying in California too. Uh, how about locally? Does the British Columbia government, to your knowledge, have they brought forward any proposals to protect uh, the deep sea bed off of our coast here? Not that I'm aware of. 
Yeah, in California, it's AB 1832, the Assembly Bill 1832. And there's a terrific article about that in uh, the Mercury uh, the Mercury Times News uh, down in uh, the States. And they frame their article. It's uh, written, uh, It's the article is AB 18, Assembly Bill 1832, could protect California coast from contentious deep sea mining. Uh, but it's subtitled, Underwater Mineral and Metal, and Metal Deposits are Targeted by Clean Energy Industries. And this is the spin where it's we're going to be asked to sacrifice uh, one thing for another. Do we sacrifice the the moonscape that is the seabed as the as the pictures show us uh, because we we have to decarbonize never mention of course is these processing ships these mining ships offshore that must take a tremendous amount of energy to process all of these minerals and keep these ships running and, and likely done with the bunker fuel the most polluting uh, and carbon intensive fuels that there are your award-winning film and help me out here bright green light uh, you you look quite far into this idea that these green colored industries that try to pass them off as uh, being uh, beneficial. How does that play into this whole project of deep sea mining? Yeah, I mean, it was in the process of making that documentary that I first found out about deep sea mining. And Bright Green Lies is an exploration of the this sort of like technological industry that is promoting itself so much as being green and being a solution for the planet. So things like solar panels, wind turbines, electric cars, hydro, uh, biomass, all that kind of stuff. And just really looking into the side of things that people don't necessarily see, the extraction dependence of these technologies and the whole process, like what goes into making them and are they really as green as these marketing materials from these companies would like to say it is and while I was sort of finishing up that film I just came upon an article about deep sea mining and realized that oh the ocean is is now becoming the next sacrifice zone you know in the name of this so-called green technology it's completely a myth that we need electric cars in order to save the planet from climate change for a number of reasons I mean one being that the manufacture of a vehicle is often where a lot of the emissions take place. So switching out the you know, fuel tank for the battery is not really addressing the whole issue. But then on top of that, if we're talking about the environment and not just being hyper-focused on climate, there are a whole host of issues that come along with car culture beyond just the emissions, the cars... Uh, wipe out vast numbers of vertebrate and invertebrate animals every year, roads fragment habitats. Um, there's, there's plenty of reasons to be opposing car culture beyond the fact that cars spew out uh, emissions. And whether you have a traditional gas burning vehicle or an electric vehicle, it is predicated on this nasty process of, of extraction, manufacture, shipping the components all around the world. And when it comes to electric vehicles, whether they're getting the metals from the deep sea or from the lithium mines that are now being proposed and the companies are trying to push in or the cobalt mines that are happening on land, 
Um, it's, it's all just really horrific stuff when you look into it. I think we need to be moving away from, from car culture as a whole and not thinking that each person should be driving around these their individual vehicles. I mean, that's just something that's not going to be sustainable in the long term anyway. But the way that mining companies frame deep sea mining, they like to talk about it like it's a choice. Like we can either mine on land and destroy rainforests and have human rights abuses and all these horrible things that come with mining on land, or we can mine the deep sea and it'll be so much better. And of course, there are things about deep sea mining that they leave out. Like they rarely ever talk about how they will process the mined material, um, which is actually a process that I've looked into and it involves either extremely high heat, uh, so it would be a very emitting industry, or uh, things like sulfuric acid. Um, it's a nasty process um, in and of itself, the actual how you separate out the metals from within these rocks. But the, yeah, the, the, whole, the whole idea that it's deep sea mining versus land mining, and you can choose one or the other, it's, it's such a false dichotomy because there is no reason that we should think that just because they open up the deep sea for this new industry, that all of a sudden companies that are focused on mining on land are gonna close down their operations. If the demand for these metals are growing as they predict, and if we're hyping up electric cars and going towards this mass production of vehicles, then we're likely going to see an expansion of mining on land as mining also expands into the deep sea. So it's not like you can just sub in one for the other. This is this is just a push towards mining culture, towards extractivism, towards this mindset that we can just take from the earth. I think it's key to understand that the deep sea is not ours to exploit. The UN defines the deep sea as the common heritage of mankind. And a lot of times when people speak about this, they will change the wording to humankind, uh, you know, to include women. (laughs) But I I think this is still a really flawed premise. I don't think the deep sea belongs to us. I don't think polymetallic nodules are there for us to take. They belong to the deep sea itself and the the species who live there. They have a role to play in the ocean. Well, we're all earthlings, even if we don't all live on the earth's surface, but in the the oceans of it, uh, we are... uh, an aquatic planet after all. Well, there's a lot more I'd like to talk to you about, but we're fast running out of time, Julia. How do people find out more about this issue? How do you recommend they get involved? Um, People can look up the work that we're doing, uh, Deep Sea Defenders on Facebook or uh, Twitter. They can check out a lot of action ideas for how to get involved there. Um, And definitely look up all of these other organizations that are doing work on deep sea mining, Blue Planet Society, Mining Watch Canada, uh, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign and the Pacific Blue Line Statement, that would be a great place to start. And there have been victories. There have been victories uh, to turn this around uh, in in various jurisdictions just south of us here in British Columbia being a couple of them and in in the uh, South Pacific as well. Well, uh, thanks a lot, uh, Julia, for coming on and and telling us a little bit about this today, eh? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Well, my great pleasure. And I want everyone else to stick around because David Rovix is going to be coming straight up and he's going to tell us a little bit about how the other 99.9% of musicians are affected by what happens with and at Spotify. So stick around for that. Thanks again, Julia. (laughs) 
Moscow, Tokyo, New York, Guerrilla Radio is everywhere. Online at CFUV.ca, Thursday and Saturdays, and at Guerrilla-Radio.com. Everywhere, all the time. Chicago. Chicago. Helsinki. Cape Town. South Carolina. Welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, the great Spotify debate rages on, gathering adherents and detractors. By the moment, you've likely heard of the furore Canadian rock legend Neil Young began with his ultimatum to online audio content streaming behemoth uh, Spotify, saying its platform wasn't big enough for both he and talk show giant Joe Rogan. Spotify replied to Mr. Young's demands by removing what music of his it had, doing little, incidentally, to cool his spleen. Well, so good for Neil, but what about the majority of musicians whose music appears on the platform for a pittance? What does Spotify mean to them? Rabble-rousing anarcho-socialist type David Rovix, whose frequent essays on political issues and societal observation are featured at Counterpunch and Dissonant Voice, among other places, describes himself as a broadcaster, musician, blogger, and author of the novel A Busker's Adventures. But he's more than just those things. David's also a husband, a parent, alt-media maven, resident of the famously restive Portland, Oregon, and man with a special talent for pissing people off. His weekly program, <laughs> This Week with David Rovix, can be found through his website, davidrovix.com, where you can read his essays, listen to his hundreds of original songs, or catch some of his hundreds of interviews. David also has picked Bones with Spotify, Inc. for years, 
and essays into it again with his latest essay, Neil Young, Joe Rogan, and a Swedish billionaire, but it has a twist. Welcome back to the program, David. Thank you, Chris. Well, and thank you for putting up with that rather windy intro, but you've done just too too much. Now, for, for those middle-aged or older folks, um, uh, can we begin with just uh, what this Spotify he thing majigger is? Uh, I, I keep hearing about it, but uh, what is it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good place to begin, really, because I mean, I don't know. You know, it, it's the dominant. It's it's the biggest. Um, it's the main way main way people get their music in the world today, basically. But I mean, to be specific about it, um, I think it is like fifty percent of people in the world today consume their music via a music streaming platform and of that 50 percent 70 percent of them are using spotify so it's a big deal yeah it's like a big global music streaming platform that has uh like a, a catalog of something like 90 million songs what what's in it for musicians musicians like yourself and 99.9 percent i i put forward of other musicians whose work appears there uh it, it's it's just a, a pittance yeah and it's a pittance but it's also like um it the i guess um there's a lot of things about the whole growth of spotify that are you know that maybe should be of general interest but one of them is is the way this platform and many others like Facebook and all the other main platforms, they they go through this process where they start out doing one thing and then once they capture the market, they start doing things very differently. And um, so that's what Spotify did. I mean, they started out uh, being a uh, subscription only um, streaming uh, service that paid uh, musicians better than they do now and then uh once they made a deal with the major record labels they began systematically screwing all the independent musicians of the world and um basically um that's what happened and in 2013 they they started their free tier they started getting much much bigger and started paying out much much less and and that's you know basically and, it, they, and they're just not under the I mean, most governments don't seem to really regulate the industry at all. And I mean, to the extent that governments do regulate the industry, that's why we get paid at more in some countries than we do in others. You're in a position where you, you can't live on it and you can't live without it. Yeah, I mean, it's like you can't you can't live on it for sure. It doesn't provide income enough. Uh, and I'm in the top four percent of Spotify artists. So, I mean, I think only that maybe if you are somewhere way, way within the top one percent of Spotify artists, you might make enough uh, to, to actually pay rent, you know, that kind of thing. And and some people, of course, are making much more. But generally, it, it doesn't pay uh, well enough, even if you're getting, you know, basically low in the low millions of streams per year it doesn't pay well enough uh to 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 even come close to surviving for an individual forget about a family or anything like that but it it is a a source of gaining an audience um and to the to the point where it is now indispensable it's it's like you can't tour and perform and stuff without without promoting your gigs on facebook very easily and by the same token you can't do that without having your music on spotify it's it's only something that a artist like neil young could even consider doing w without sabotaging their own career and, and that this is not a criticism of neil young for for taking his mu music off off spotify it's just not an option for for uh 
most musicians who do this for a living. It's an option for those who are who are doing extremely well or for those who are not making a living at all and have no aspirations to. Presumably, Neil has plenty of money already with before Spotify even came along, but you're in the top 96 percentile of artists on there. And are, are you even close to making rent on what Spotify returns to you for you for featuring your music? No, I, I think <clears throat> I figure about um, I, th- I figure I'm averaging somewhere around a million streams a year on on Spotify or maybe about two million altogether uh, in, with the streaming platforms all added up. And um, that basically between all the different streaming platforms revenue, which is mostly uh, Spotify or something like half Spotify, I think uh, I end up making uh, in the low hundreds per month, you know, and my rent uh, that that would have covered my rent 20 years ago, but not now. Let's get in, into this. You, you, you're saying somewhat what you've just said now that, well, you know, it's it's pretty shitey the the pathetic amount of return for artists but it does provide you with uh, a, a necessary service. Is it, is it like a necessary evil then? It's like it provides a necessary service in the way that the, in, in the way that the highway provides a necessary service once there's no more train line, you know, right. that's the kind of necessary service it provides. They sabotaged all the other services, you know, they undermine them to the point of uh, driving them out of business to a large extent or making them irrelevant or and then then, then they're the dominant platform so it's sort of like uber is now a necessary service it is an actually necessary service at this point because it, there's a lot of towns in the world where if you need to get a taxi there is no alternative other than uber so you have to have an uber account at this point i have an uber account and i use uber and i I think it's one of the most horrific corporations in the world along with spotify <laughs> and apple and google and a lot of others but you know, it's a horrible corporation, but, you know, we're, we're stuck with it at this point, just like we're stuck with sort of basic infrastructure, because these corporations are not really like, they're not independent entities at this point. They are basically, they have, they have taken on the role of monopolies. They've taken on the role of, of utilities, basically, and they've, that's what they wanted to do. They've systematically driven all the other competition out of business, and now they are the business. But wait a minute, there's a savior. There's a white knight on the horizon, according to Neil Young. Anyway, he recommends people go to Amazon to stream his music he, and he, he waxes lyrical about the better quality uh, sound quality and so forth so is amazon gonna save us it's i haven't heard him uh, promoting <laughs> amazon that's funny but um yeah no i think uh, amazon certainly w- won't save us but and uh, also the thing the fact that neil um is promoting amazon also i mean basically it just it's kind of it's kind of sad and and it's sad in the way that i like people I have a teenage daughter and, and, you know, I know what I know that young people look at me like, like, oh, that is a sad old man who doesn't understand, <laughs> you know, the world. Right. I mean, they, they have empathy. Oh, right? And they look at me like, oh, he, he really just doesn't get it. You know, and but, I feel that way about Neil because, I mean, and, and just a few years ago, I didn't get it either. You know, and so I'm not I'm not, you know, I'm only just a few years ahead of Neil in, as far as this goes. But. But, uh, you know, if he actually regularly used Spotify or or had knew people who used Spotify regularly, and I'm guessing he probably doesn't have too many like teenagers in his life. You know, I don't know if he has grandkids or whatever. But I mean, um, basically, Spotify is for people 
you know, like my age and older, Spotify is what Facebook is for other people. I mean, it is an infrastructure. It's an environment. It's a place where you interact with people. It's it's where you live. It's not like you can replace it with Amazon. You know, Amazon did not capture the market. Amazon is one, you know, is what is it? The biggest corporation in the world or one of them. But it did not capture the music streaming market. It had, it does music streaming, but most people don't use Amazon because it doesn't have the kind of like attractive sort of playlist kind of infrastructure and the kinds of the, the particular algorithms that Spotify has. People prefer Spotify and then because they prefer it and they're all in it, it became a monopoly and it is now basically a monopoly, you know, in, in the sense of the way, the way especially young people think of it as a, as a sort of community gathering place, basically. Yeah, well, maybe maybe not yet. Uh, Amazon doesn't. But uh, Neil Young before, and, and I'm getting some of this from uh, Jimmy Dore, who has a big platform on uh, uh, YouTube. Neil Neil Young sold his, or I don't know if he sold his whole catalog, mm. but a, a, a massive amount of his back catalog he sold to some huge corporation for uh, reportedly $150 million, or American dollars too at that for our Canadian listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about this, uh, where you see the, the music industry, the the whole ownership of, of back catalogs and everything coming into play? And for, for this is, of course, for that very elite 0.1% of the, of the uh, artists involved. But what does that say about the whole nature of the music industry? I guess the um, in terms of these kind of like artists like Neil Young and Bob Dylan um, selling their entire back catalog and Bruce Springsteen and others. I mean, the ones that we hear about are the ones who are making just just obscene amounts of money um, by doing that. But I get, I mean, I guess what it shows, um, I mean, among other things, is it shows that music has great value to the corporations in terms of its long term value. What kind of money they think that they're going to be making off of it in the future if they own it so i mean it's a it's this is not something that most musicians can do you know you can't sell your entire catalog even if you've been making lots of music for your whole life and you're old and you want to sell your catalog it's nobody wants to buy it you know unless you're <laughs> you know, neil young or bob dylan or you mean you haven't been nobody's come knocking on your door and saying hey you hey call me musicians wanted here where you want 100 million or something I mean, honestly, I uh, there is this service, right? There's there's this service for you know when this was becoming a thing, it was a thing. It, it, there's a service called um, you know the the royalty exchange. It's called royalty exchange, and this they are a facilitator for these kinds of sales. You know, so you can you know, you can check in with them basically and see if you've got what uh, other what some capitalists might be interested in in terms of buying your whole back catalog and so i did um you know check into it and see um you know and 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 i i was told by their i don't know if it was a, i think there might have been an actual human in the process at some point or, or it, i i don't think it was all automated i think i actually did some human in, who knew something about how these things work um had to at some point you know decide you know whether I was a candidate for this, and I'm not. So I mean, I just was curious, and and I found out that you know definitely I'm not you know famous enough that my music is of any interest to any capitalist to buy my back catalog. Oh well, good for you. I mean that that if if nobody's offered you any money, then you, then you you you're doing something or something like that, as the old song says. If 
if you ain't been offered any money for your work, then you must be doing something or, or something. I don't know. I mean, if you <laughs> forgive <got> me. <laughs> any of it could be valuable potentially. It's just, it, you know, it needs to be famous enough. It's not about whether it's political or not. I mean, Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen um, and Neil Young have all written lots of great politically driven music, and yet they all made hundreds of millions uh, selling their back catalog. So, I mean, you know, the, the corporations probably aren't going to be promoting their best political stuff unless they have some particular reason to do it. You know, they'll they'll shelve all that. But I mean, generally, that's been the case during their careers as well. I mean, <clears throat> you know, one of uh, I don't know, Spring, one of Springsteen's best albums, The Ghost of Tom Joad, was just barely promoted. And I think it right. sold less than 100,000 copies, you know, but that's how it is with the record labels. You know, they, they let them record it, but they don't promote it the way they promote other stuff. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today politically with David Rovix. He's a frequent essayist on political issues and societal observations. His uh, writing is featured at his site, davidrovix.com, and at Counterpunch, a prominently and dissonant voice, less prominently, among other places. David's a broadcaster. He's a musician, blogger. He's the author of the novel A, Buster's, uh, a Busker's Adventures. We'll talk about that too, David. And, and uh and more. Uh, his show that is hosted from his site is This Week with David Rovix, where he interviews all manner of interesting and controversial people. Uh, yeah, politically speaking, um, I, I lost it. I, I'm a big Neil Young fan of his music and have been for as long as I can remember. Uh, but I lost it for Neil Young, the person, when he came out uh, in 2001 after the 9-11 with his song, uh, uh, Let's Roll, or something to that effect, where he was you know, cheerleading, I thought at the time, the aerial bombardment and invasion of Afghanistan in revenge for the 9-11 attacks. It, it seemed like a, a, a politically uh, moronic uh, position to take uh, to me at that time, and it, I think it's proven to be the case since. But uh, this whole thing of politics now with... Uh, with Neil Young attacking Joe Rogan, the podcaster, and getting this off. This is a political move, and this is, a, well, what we might be more used to calling a, a cancel culture. Yeah, I mean, that's when it gets really complicated, I think. Um, and, and I'm not sure if the complexities of the situation are complexities that uh, Neil Young is particularly interested in. I, and I don't know. He may be. I have no idea. Um, but um, I know that many of the critics of Joe Rogan uh, and many of the people who are calling for Spotify to uh, you know, remove him from their platform have definitely never listened to Joe Rogan's podcasts and, um, you know, and they don't use Spotify. So there's there's some problems here with that, I think, in terms of, you know, them sort of making their case because they don't necessarily know what their case is. But to the extent that um, Joe Rogan has guests that are promoting ideas that are unscientific and problematic in terms of like, you know, vaccines and whatever, to me, the issue is not who he has on his shows or how he interviews them at all. The issue is that he has a $100 million exclusive contract with Spotify. And um, so that's an issue to me, not for, for two different main reasons. One is because Spotify should be taking their uh, profits and and giving them to independent musicians who are the basis of their platform in the first place. And they have no right 
to be uh, paying us 0.01 cents per play while they use all this money uh, to uh, spend on $100 million exclusive contracts for podcasters. So I don't think they should be doing that in the first place. I think they, th this corporation should have in some should in some way be accountable to musicians uh, that made the platform what it is, and they should never have been able to start their free tier without consulting us in the first place. I mean, it's just the whole way that this corporation behaves is like they're a vulture capitalist corporation. They they conduct their business in such a way that they are killing the industry that they're part of, and they they're not sustaining it at all. They're killing it, and that's what they've been doing since 2013, at least. the the other The other thing, though, is is that it's a scale issue. You know, it's it's like first of all, they should be doing something different with their money. But but forgetting about that, at, at the other point is that it's a scale issue. It's not an issue of. I mean, I think I should be able to interview any guests I want to and and talk to them at whatever length and whoever they may be on principle. Too, and I understand if people get upset with me about it sometimes, depending on what guests I have and whatever. But um, th this is a whole different thing when you have a YouTube channel where maybe on, on a good week you might have 200 people listening to an interview. That is a whole different thing from having 11 million listeners every time you do a show. I think the solution here actually is is just not to have uh, media corporations that are as powerful or big or wealthy or can make the kind of decisions that Spotify can make to have such an impact on on the discourse in the world. It's just wrong that any corporation should have that kind of power and influence. But aside from that, I don't if unless we're going to take on corporate power and corporate influence and corporate social media algorithms, then framing the Joe Rogan debate as a debate of free speech versus censorship. Is, is a fake way to frame it, and it's a very problematic way to frame it, very problematic. I mean, of course, the kind of guests that we're talking about that Joe Rogan is having are exactly the same kinds of guests that you can find on conservative media channels all over the world, all over the United States and all over the world. So, I mean, it's, first of all, uh, it's just a symbolic random thing to to uh, pick on Joe Rogan as opposed to anybody else. And, and of course, he's the biggest, most popular podcaster in the world. So that is a good reason uh, to single him out. But it is not taking care of the problem to censor one podcaster when it's the whole media landscape that is uh, the problem. And it's not just the conservative media landscape that's the problem either. The liberal media landscape is constantly constantly pumping out disinformation every day and i know because i watch it all day every day i mean not all day but i watch it every day for hours for way way too much i i consider <laughs> yeah. media you know and i'm sure you do too but it's kind of like i consider no, it part of the job as a, as you know when i'm going to be you know writing essays about current events i should be uh, up on current events and god it's just getting worse all the time well, it is, but you know, and I, I, I have watched. I've followed uh, online. I'm changing my watching habits. I, the the Canadian Broadcast Corporation. I used to watch religiously, not because I enjoyed it, but because I felt that uh, it was my duty as a taxpayer yeah. to to see what was going on. And and then it got so, I it just was so detrimental to my mental health. <laughs> I, I, worse, stopped, right? I stopped watching it. I I don't watch it anymore I, unless somebody says, "Oh, did you see this?" And then I'll go and. All right, I'll, I'll begrudgingly go and check it out. But no, it it can be counted on to to put forward a certain perspective all the time. I do watch uh, Joe Rogan on YouTube, or used to anyway. I haven't seen, you know since he left, and I have seen those interviews uh, about the uh, 
the uh, whatchamacallit, the, uh, you know, that thing that's been going on, the COVID thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that. that their thing. Um, and I, I, I disagree that it's uh, it's propaganda or anything. He's talking to guys that are scientists and shit. You know, so what? But I'm, I actually, yeah. I, I got to be careful what I say too, though. I, I can't say that it's uh, that COVID's not the thing that every every you know the CBC says it is, and or else I'll get into trouble. So I mean, they're. But that's fact- a good. That's the point, though. That's, I mean, the thing is, like I like I have a friend who is an epidemiologist, and she does not share uh, the CDC's orientation on a lot of stuff. And and yet, if I were to, and and, I, and she just happens not to be interested in being interviewed in public. Otherwise, I would have already had her on my uh, podcast. But I talked to her privately, and uh, you know. But I'm I'm sure that if I did interview her, then I, you know, if anybody, you know, of, of the people who love to pile on me anytime I interview somebody they don't like, you know, they they'd pick on that too, and and say I'm spreading anti-scientific uh, stuff, you know, for sure. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about this pylon that you're undergoing now? Again, I mean, well, this it's, is a, it's this been, is, like we talked about this like a God. I can't even remember when, like a year and a half or maybe two years ago or something. Is this just a resurgence of the same old thing about you interviewed some guy that was involved with a you know far right group, and then they said, "Oh, why are you giving these guys platforms? You're a horrible person." Blah blah blah. Is this just mm-hmm. a continuation of that, or is this something else? Yep, just a continuation of that. They they pick. I mean, and then I was on uh, a a right wingers uh, podcast, um, which uh, or YouTube, um, you know, interview, which which I and I I went into it completely intentionally, knowing what I was doing because I wanted to talk to his audience, and um and and this is and also this is what you do when you're when you're a musician. If if somebody wants to do an interview you with you, you generally say yes, and um. You know, probably I, I might think twice about giving an interview for Fox because when I did do an interview with them a long time ago, they didn't let me say anything. So, so I, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's kind of pointless, you know, if they're actually not going to let you talk. But if they're going to let you talk, and this guy let me talk, then uh, then I want to be, I want to reach their audience. I did not share that interview with my audience because I didn't want them to necessarily, uh, I didn't want to promote this guy. And I didn't like uh, some of the stuff he said, you know, even though I didn't challenge him on every stupid thing he said but um you know i want to be on their show and yeah so this is the kind of stuff i'm getting you know for appearing on somebody else's uh show because they uh, are are uh, are you know believe in conspiracy stuff you know and that that, that which then makes them right wingers because according to the modern uh puritanical left um you can't believe in conspiracies without being a right winger and you can't be a libertarian without being a right winger they are the 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 puritanical left today is doing such a great job of driving anybody who believes in conspiracies and anybody who's a libertarian into the hands of the right it is really a sad time to be alive well, and up here in Canada right now, I'm sure that you've seen on the media down there, and it's coming to a town near you soon too. I, I'm sure. Yeah, what's and going, that's exactly what I'm here. talking about. Yeah, the trucker's well, convoy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there's people that I know, and that I know that mutual friends of you, yours, and mine, who are definitely not right wingers, but who have sympathies with what's going on for the reasons of you know for reasons of their own, but reasons uh, that should be explored and that we should be able to feature. 
in all in all uh, media. I I think anyway. Exactly. That, I that, completely agree. And I'm one of those people with lots of sympathies for anyone who's acting on libertarian impulses. And uh, if you are uh, if you have a problem with mandates of any kind, and if you have a problem with you know being told you have to get vaccinated across a border when Oh wait a second! Similar wait, rates wait a second. Of wait, wait, wait! Oh wait, wait! There's mm-hmm. restriction. There's restrictions on my my uh, ability to speak about certain things, and you're getting very close to a line that could get me in a lot of trouble. So we we can't talk about that. Sorry, Canada, you can't hear it. Oh, that's, that's um, good to know. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, well, and uh, okay. Well, David, we're we're um, we're fast running out of time. You know, I was just looking up before the show our past interview. You know that you and I have been talking sporadically for 14 years now did you realize that 14 years that's, that's 14, good yeah is that amazing or what i can't believe it but david uh, you're also involved uh, with the uh, the rental movement or the renters movement uh, artists for rent control.org down in portland uh, it's a it's a big issue up here in, in victoria it's very it's just brutal and and yeah and do you think it might sense. matter for the truckers too you think they might be thinking about those things too as the cost of living skyrockets in Canada and as life becomes more and more unaffordable for the average person. I wonder if they have that on their minds too. Well, so can we, can we, we'll finish with this then, David, what this movement that you see on TV that might, it's spreading to Europe. It's probably going to be manifest if it isn't already in, in the United States. Do you, is this a, a more is is this a workers movement or do you think it could be the the fuse to a broader worker movement a worker revolt against the system we have in place that allows uh, billionaires like the Swedish billionaire you mentioned that run Spotify or or the ones that run Amazon and send, spend their time buying yachts too big to get out into the ocean or hmm. sending rockets to the moon accidentally or not what is happening on a broad level, and I think it's important to you know get away from the the the, the you know the leaves and and look at the forest here. What's happening on a broad level is for the past fifty years or so, uh, the, it, there's been a process of economic stratification happening in so much of the industrialized world where these movements are taking place people's people's you know the cost of living is rising real wages are not people are you know they can see the rich getting richer and this is a particularly evident and extremely expensive playgrounds for the rich like downtown ottawa or central london or central paris these um this is what's going on this stratification this polarization this has been going on my entire lifetime and it's getting worse and when this happens in multi-party democracies like they have in Europe, in places like Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, etc., what is happening, what's been happening for decades is the far right and the, the more left-wing parties increase in popularity and the centrist parties decrease in popularity. People are looking for solutions. They look for them from the left and they look for them for the right. And at this moment in North America, there's a lot more people looking for solutions on the right, it seems, than on the left. And much of the left is doing a great job of pushing them away. Well, and if we can't talk to each other or if we can't talk about each other's ideas, whether we like them or not, uh, but if we once we stop talking, then what, what's left? Yeah, and we already stopped talking a long time ago. Yeah, that's pretty scary stuff. David, it's always a joy to speak with you. You're, you're going on the road again. 
Yeah, and in, in, in uh, just about yeah five days, I fly off to Scandinavia, doing gigs in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Iceland. Oh, to see the spring in Europe again, that must be lovely. Thanks a lot, David, for coming on. You can go to David's site to find out you know, the myriad stuff that he gets up to, davidrovics.com. That's R-O-V-I-C-S, davidrovics.com. Thanks a lot, David, for coming on again. Thank you. And moving into this 14th year of our, our uh, sporadic uh, collaboration. A great pleasure, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks to Julia Barnes as well. Go to Deep Sea Defenders. Uh, do a search for that to find out what they're doing about deep sea mining. Uh, it's something that we can stop now or face the consequences for the rest of all time. There's uh, That's all I've got for this week. Till the next time. So uh, stick around because there's great music coming up. You know that. But that's all I've got for this week. Until the next. Under the sea, you're